Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. These are wild times we're living in, and it's hard for us at Fortune to keep up with the pace of events. One of the interviews you're going to hear today was actually recorded back in March and done in person, by the way, face-to-face. Imagine that. It was March 12th, my last face-to-face interview. The next day, our Manhattan offices shut down, and this podcast pivoted to talking about COVID-19. That story obviously hasn't gone away, but I think now the time has come to unearth this very interesting conversation with Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever. And here's why. Pullman was probably the first big company CEO to really step back and say, hey, wait a minute, capitalism as we practice it today isn't working nearly as well as it should. Business has to do a better job addressing big social issues, climate change, for instance, or the millions or billions of people who've been left behind by the economic system. Because if business doesn't do that, it won't be able to survive or thrive in the long run. Well, the last three months have in many ways strengthened Pullman's argument. They've certainly shined a light on disparities in the healthcare system and on racial injustice, but they've also created an economic financial crisis for many companies. So how do you focus on these pressing social problems when your bottom line is falling apart and telling you you've got to do something just to survive financially for the next quarter? That, of course, is the big question of our times and a big question for this podcast. Today, you're going to hear why Pullman feels so strongly that whatever happens, business has an obligation to look beyond the bottom line. Then for some additional context, we're going to talk to another thought leader on this topic, Dove Seidman. But first, Paul Pullman. Paul, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, Alan. So take us back to the beginning. Ten years ago, you were tapped to become CEO of Unilever, one of the great companies of the world, giant consumer product company. Everyone knows Dove Soap. Everyone knows Vaseline. Did you know then that you wanted to build a different kind of company? Well, when I became CEO was end uh, 2008, but it happened to coincide at the same time with the height of the financial crisis. And it was clear that we discovered that although we had had a tremendous period of economic growth, that it had come at an enormous cost, uh, enormous debt to the public sector and, and private debt, enormous overconsumption, frankly, by a small group of people in society that is unsustainable. And then finally, a system where we already uh, knew that we left too many people behind. So you were early. You saw in 2008 that it wasn't just a financial crisis. It wasn't just an economic crisis. It was a broader crisis in capitalism that needed to be addressed, how you do what you do. We're now seeing, I'm hearing more and more CEOs sound that alarm. But are they for real? I mean, how do you tell whether this is just window uh, dressing or serious action? Well, there's definitely momentum uh, picking up in this world now that more and more companies understand that things need to change and they want to be part of it. Even in the US, 75% of the green energy uh, would be cheaper than coal or fossil. 
and you can change right now and be profitable even immediately. So technology has played a big role, but also the awareness of CEOs that uh, citizens of this world are asking for it. So something uh, real is going and, on. And the financial markets are getting interested. You know, the financial markets are really, especially when it gets to climate, want to de-risk their portfolios. They've seen in the last few years that fossil-heavy portfolios have significantly underperformed the market. Isn't the nature of capitalism such that there's always going to be somebody out there who's going to be willing to play the dirty game to take the money off the table. So, you know, the you can have 75% of companies say we're banning coal. We're not going to take energy from coal. We're not going to invest in coal. But there's going to be somebody out there who says, well, hey, this gives me an opportunity to make a bunch of money off of yeah. coal. Yeah, there are always free riders. And also in the financial market, there is a distinction between people that want the short-term profit and that care about the long term. The bulk of the financial market is basically our pension funds. These are institutional investors. So they want returns over the long term and they want also to be sure that we have a world that we can retire in. So I think we're moving in that sense in the right direction. When you get the issue of free riders or people that abuse, which you have in any sector, but if you have a significant critical mass of an industry that is willing to move, I think you can get, you marginalize the, the few that abuse, and we should not really concentrate too much around that. You, they you, will be flushed out in this age of transparency. You talk about when you get a significant percentage of an industry marching together. This gets to what you're doing uh, now. This gets to your new company, Imagine. Can you talk about what you're trying to do with Imagine? So what we find is that uh, governments in this world right now have a little bit of a hard time and global governance is broken. That was an understatement. That is an understatement. (laughs) I tried to be polite for the broadcast. But they're shrinking back to their own territories, populism, Uh, xenophobia, nationalism, all these things are going in the wrong direction. But meanwhile, these issues are piling up. Issues of cybersecurity, financial markets, uh, climate change are actually global issues. The terrible coronavirus that we now deal with, these are global issues that need global coordination. I believe it's the duty of the private sector to step up and fill that void and be responsible. We are not elected bodies, but we do have to fill that void. And it's in the interest of business. And increasingly, business understands that. Ten years ago, when I started, we might not have had the data, but now at least the data is there to convince more and more people. So I think we're at that crust of that tipping point. So imagine looks at it by industry sector, where we bring together the key players on the industry sector at CEO level, because we don't have much time and we want ownership from the top down and fast decision making. And our premise and theory of change is that if we can get about 20 to 25% of a value chain together by sector, we can actually create tipping points. And then we work with individual companies to make them more courageous and be leaders in that collective. And then the other companies come in. And what we find is when you get 25, 30% of companies sitting together, the CEOs become more courageous. Their ambitions actually go up as a sort of a race to the top happening. Others want to join because they think, hey, what's going on there? Have I missed something? And instead of reacting to symptoms and becoming shorter and shorter term, we're actually starting to deal with the underlying causes and slowly tilt the balance in favor of a more inclusive form of capitalism. It's it's very, very impressive. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, we all know that what gets measured gets managed. 
folks like your colleagues at Deloitte have spent a century building up metrics to keep track of shareholder return. But how do we measure stakeholder return? This is still all about measuring attributes that do, in fact, drive shareholder value. Because over the long term, if you are driving indicators that represent value creation to your stakeholders, that will translate into premium returns to your shareholders. So this is really about as lengthening our horizons. It's a combination of quantitative and qualitative metrics. There's an enormous amount of work to be done, but you're seeing a real sense of urgency around this. I think that's a really important point, that in the long term, over years, decades, the interests of shareholders and the interests of the stakeholders converge. But in the short term, they can often go in different directions. They certainly can. But what you see is leading investors encouraging the companies they invest in to make certain that they are building and leading sustainable enterprises with the objective of maximizing shareholder value over a long time. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure. I'm joined now by Dove Seidman, founder of LRN, who is one of the most thoughtful people I know in thinking about how business is changing and needs to change the way it operates. We have a lot to talk about. Dove, thanks for joining us. I want to start with Paul Pullman, who we were just talking to, because you've known him for a long time. You've seen what he did during his decade running Unilever. Is he an exception? Or is he part of something bigger? So I have known Paul from the time he took over as the CEO of Unilever, and we've become uh, close friends, and we feel that we are in common cause. I don't think Paul is the exception, but he is exceptional, and the distinction matters. Uh, Steve Jobs was an exception. Elon Musk is an exception. Paul Pullman is an exceptional human being. He's uh, He's an exceptionally fine person, and he's an enlightened leader. But his playbook that he brought forth at the vanguard of where business was going is available to to everybody. And in that sense, if you're prepared to make courageous choices earlier in your career the way he did, it's not an exception. You know, the, the emblematic moment, I think, in Paul Pullman's journey was not too long ago, a few years before he retired from Unilever. Warren Buffett, 3G, the big private equity firm, and Kraft Heinz come with an offer to acquire Unilever. Now, normally a board meets and considers the offer and puts out some public announcement saying we've carefully considered the offer and it doesn't reflect sufficient value. So wink, wink, uh, go back to the drawing board and come back with more. Paul basically put out a statement saying we don't share beliefs, we don't share values, and we have different models of capitalism. That's the first time I've seen a CEO publicly turn down a merger with a moral pronouncement and it was over by basically saying, at any price, we do not belong in a marriage. So you have to ask yourself, what journey was he on to get to the point where he had such a reservoir of goodwill and moral authority that when he took a moral stance like that, he was believed as sincere and they went away. I really like the way you frame that as a different model of capitalism because Kraft Heinz uh, for a while was making a lot of money for people like Buffett by slashing costs, slashing marketing, laying off people and maximizing its short-term profit. And Pullman has always been much more about the the long-term. Yes. Well, What Paul and other leaders at the Vanguard figured out is that the world is not just rapidly changing, it's being dramatically reshaped. It functions and operates differently. 
we were not too long ago just connected. We're now interdependent. We rise and fall together. The actions, hopes, plights, frustrations of a few people far away in living color, viscerally and visually, affect so many others very far away. These issues are now inescapably part of the business agenda because the business world has fused. And I just think Paul and others figured that out early and reshaped their business accordingly. I'm back with Paul Pullman. You came in to a troubled company. Your marching orders were turn this company around. And you start talking about a climate crisis that's, you know, a couple of decades in the future, or you start talking about, you know, social problems that may not directly impinge on the business. Explain why positive social impact was essential to turn the company around. Well, first of all, businesses cannot survive in societies that fail. So we have a responsibility to be sure that these societies function. And nor do I think that we as businesses can be bystanders in a system that gives us life in the first place. So when that system isn't quite working, we have to take responsibility. It doesn't serve at all to have more billionaires become even more billionaire. They're not going to use more shampoo to wash their hair or they're not going to eat much more. You know, but when you have uh, 80, 90 million Americans that haven't seen their income changed, then your market is going That down. hurts your business. That hurts your you business. You felt it in 2008 oh, and I think anybody that would have done a, an analysis with a little bit of peeling of the onion would have seen that these economic systems would benefit a few, but not the many. And in fact, already at that time, we had statistics. When I was born in 1956, the Average lifetime of a publicly traded company was 67 years in the U.S. where data is available. When I started my CEO job, it had dropped down to 17 years. The number wow. of publicly traded companies had dropped in half in the yeah. U.S. from 8,000 to about the 4,000 numbers. So there was a, a poison creeping in to the financial markets that even people like BlackRock or, or State Streets did not quite realize. And yeah. if the if there are less public companies, you give less people in society access to value creation. Yeah, You're actually yeah. then in the business of creating poverty. Some people might disagree with that, but it's not a good business to me in the business of poverty. Well, you say some people might disagree with it. As you know very well, some people did disagree with it. You had, particularly in the middle of the decade, you had some shareholders who were very unhappy who said, uh, Mr. Pullman, please stop trying to save the world and just fix the return of this company. How do you deal with that when your investors are telling you, hey, hey, shut up about the environment, do the dirty work? Yeah. Well, the first thing is, Alan, the macro picture is in the 10 years, we had a 300% shareholder return. But it is true that if you are running a company for the shorter term and you're trying to survive and you're just trying to do whatever is possible to hit your financial numbers, most likely you also attract shorter term shareholders and speculators. We had a lot of volatility in our share prices because in fact people were speculating against our shares. That's not the shareholders that you want. That's not really the shareholder that's going to build the company with you for the longer term. So by abolishing quarterly reporting, by moving our communication to the longer term, we also had an underlying active program to attract the right longer term You're basically saying you told the shareholders who complained we don't want you. I literally said that, and that's well quoted and well documented that I said, if you don't like our strategy, <laughs> then put your money somewhere else. Because if you dance to the pipes of 
many of these shareholders, you're going to ruin your company because they all want different things and none of them have ever run a company themselves. So you had this attack from from Kraft Heinz. It was a, a takeover effort. I think at the time people thought Kraft Heinz was a very good bottom line focused company and they thought it might instill some discipline into Unilever. How did you deal with that? Yeah, undoubtedly in any company you can instill more discipline. So I would not deny that. I think uh, in uh, Unilever as well as in any other company, it's a continuous improvement process. But here is a company that comes in owned by two people that might have a combined wealth of 150 or 200 billion, which we sort of earmark as heroes. Nobody asks themselves the question of how they got that money. And they want to, uh, you know, their, their model is sub substantially different from our model. Uh, they came at a time when the pound was low because of Brexit, where the uncertainties in the world were high, so future cash flows were discounted and where money was in abundance. You know, you could borrow at zero. And some of the banks, in this case, uh, JP Morgan, they were happy to lend them 60, 70 billion for a hostile takeover. That came you know, from JP Morgan? Well, anything, anybody who can earn money will jump on these things. That there yeah. is no uh, moral in, in the financial industry with a few exceptions. But having said that, I think the, these are two fundamentally different models. Ours is a long-term compounded growth model for which the shareholder gets a good return. You can take any period in the history of Unilever. There were better days and worse days for the company. But here are people which are having a lot of money and their model is very simple. They come into a company like ours, they sell off a little bit, they leverage it up seven times. They cut a lot they of costs. They cut a lot of costs. They take out half the uh, employees. They run it probably at a, because they're leveraging it up so much, uh, the tax bill will go down. So society pays for that as well. And they create this ripple effect where you get a short-term lift in the share price because your margins go up. But then uh, the company has no long-term viability. You look at Kraft Heinz now, three or four years later, Warren Buffett has done the biggest write-off of his portfolio of $20 billion. The share price has collapsed. The dividend payments have halved. You know, a lot of people that have worked hard for their whole lives for Kraft Heinz that were proud to work for that company have lost their savings, have lost their pensions for a few billionaires. We, is we, that the system we want? We, we used to always legal, think of Warren Buffett as a long-term investor. Yeah, well, there, there are different ways to do long-term investing. And I think on this one, he might not have gotten it totally right. You know, there are other companies that and other leaders who aren't in as strong a position as you were in and who lose the, those battles. And that is the sad part. That is the sad part. There are two forms of capitalism that live next to each other. And frankly, they're in conflict. One is optimizing the shorter term returns and running it purely with shareholder primacy, where everything is translated into money for often a few individuals. And then there is the model that is a long-term stakeholder model. But we have major changes to make to our economic system to bend the curve of capitalism. This country did that successfully when you had the New Deal under Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. You introduced social security, you introduced healthcare, you provided a different form of capitalism after the recession or the Great Depression that served this country well. It doesn't um, really serve much to have a debate on the word capitalism itself, but what is clear is that most people say we have to bend the curve of capitalism. First of all, we have to be sure that we stay within the planetary boundaries, which means decarbonizing our global economy, which means moving to a regenerative or circular economy. We need to move the financial markets to the longer term. If we live in this continuous rat race of short-termism, because we've put so much money in a global economy trying to chase returns, it's not going to work. To attack the issues of poverty or food security or education, we need longer-term plans and business needs space for that. And then last but not least, we need to change our economic system to make it more inclusive. There's no question about that. Any system where too many people 
feel that they're excluded or ultimately not fully participating will rebel against itself. So our economic system was designed at a time when, when uh, capital was scarce and environmental and social resources were abundant. Now we live in a time where environmental and social resources are scarce and capital is abundant. So we have to change the way that we do this. And business wants to be part of it. There are more businesses now that are pushing a decarbonization or circular economy. There are more businesses now, including the financial market, that understand that we want to move to the long term. And there are actually more businesses working on just transition or a new social contract that understand that this gig economy, uh, you know, you take now the coronavirus, 50% of people in the US don't have a pension, don't have an employer. Yeah. You know, you, you close the offices here. Uh, this ripple effect is not even understood right now, but yeah. we have responsibility for that. You talk about a more inclusive form of capitalism. Is capitalism broken? Well, uh, 56% of Americans, even which in this country, don't believe in capitalism anymore. 80 million Americans are $600 away from the poverty. You have a country here where when the vice president gets asked, you know, with so many people not having access to health care, how are they going to be able to test themselves and find out if they can get the care when, they, when you have issues like coronavirus? And he turns around and walks away. This is a system that isn't quite working, and it's not surprising. Most people in this middle class have not seen their incomes go up since the 70s. And what is happening is with this erosion of the middle class and this polarization in society, you're actually eroding democracy. There is no country in the world where you can build democracy uh, with an eroding middle class. And as this happens and as society becomes polarized, values are attacked, values of dignity and respect, equity, compassion. And as these values are attacked, we attack humanity in the first place. So if we as leaders don't speak up and fill that void and depoliticize this again on both sides of the aisle, we create a world we just cannot live in. We're putting our own humanity at risk here as we talk. And that is what we need to be aware of. What kind of leaders can do what Paul is talking about here? For an answer, I went back to Dove Seidman, who's also the founder of the Howe Institute for Society. We know that what really makes the world work is when individuals with moral authority occupy positions of formal authority. And the way in which the world has been reshaped to make it so fused and transparent has basically shown the difference between the two. Formal authority is acquired by you can win an election, you could seize it, it could be bestowed on you. But moral authority is earned by who you are and how you lead. And now we're seeing them as distinct. We've seen some Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs or, or think we work try to lock up their formal authority with 20 to 1 supermajority shares. But everything is being disrupted and the ability to lead and hang on to power and get somebody to go from here to there based on the fact that I know that you know that you know that I know that I have more formal authority than you or that my title is bigger than yours, that doesn't work. The power in organizations is much more attached to the employees right. uh, today than it was in the past. And the employees want to be more than just employees. They want to know they're working for a company that's doing good in the world and they want to be led to a better place. Yes. You know, it's interesting. I think, Alan, you and I are both millennials and you're looking at me funny saying <laughs> that we're both millennials. Well, some people think that being a millennial is a demographic. It's actually a psychographic. Millennials did not invent meaning. You want meaning in your life. I want meaning in our lives. And Right now, in the middle of a pandemic, most of us are, are searching to try to make sense and find meaning so that we can hopefully forge ahead. What the contribution that I believe millennials will have enduringly made to the workplace is the insistence of getting meaning at work. 
We used to get meaning in one sphere of our life and get a paycheck in another. They've combined the two. And now they want to work at places where they could sit at their Thanksgiving dinner and brag to a distant cousin or relative that they haven't seen for a year and say, let me tell you why I'm proud to work at my company because of how they dealt with this issue. If it's violence uh, in communities with guns or it could be based on uh, religious freedom laws, you're seeing one social, religious, ethical issue brought to the forefront by the next generation that frankly has been morally aroused and morally activated. And they're insisting that their company stand for something that they can believe in. But there's one more thing I really want to point out. It used to be that the job of a leader was to say, if you're a general, take that hill. Or if you're a football coach, run this offense. Or if you're a CEO, here's the vision. This is the strategy. And in that world, what's everybody's job? It's to do the next thing right. The few specify for the many. And with enough carrots and sticks and specifying what you can and can't do, you want people to run ahead fast and continuously do the next thing right. Well, with the rise of artificial intelligence and the intelligent machines, they're being programmed to do more of what we used to do. They're being programmed to do the next thing right. But only a human being can do the next right thing. If the new imperative of business is to do the next right thing, it takes moral leadership, right, to create the norms and the standards and to inspire people not to do the next thing right, but to do the next right thing. And risk is being reconstituted. Risk used to be the failure of big systems and protocols and processes breaking down. Risk could be a video in a neighborhood Starbucks in Philadelphia that spreads around the world. Risk is human conduct. It's human behavior. And because risk and opportunity, so risk is how I described it. But there's also an opportunity to outbehave the competition, not just to outperform and outproduce, not just outsmart, but to outbehave by how you keep your promises, by how you inspire others. And in that world, it takes moral leadership to inspire many others to do the next right thing. The next right thing. Determining what that is can be really difficult right now in the midst of both a pandemic and what's likely to be the biggest economic crisis of our lifetime. So before I let Paul go, I wanted to get his take on that. All these things we've been talking about on this show, all these efforts by business to have a positive social impact, will they go away when the bad times come? Is this a, a good time focus of CEOs? And then when they get in the soup, will they turn back to short-term concerns? The reality is that the train has left the station. We know that a more diverse organization performs better. We know that companies that decarbonize and are well aware of the risks in their value chain and do something about it perform better. We know now that companies that take a longer-term view, according to McKinsey, have 40% higher revenue growth and 37% higher profit. If you take my company that I ran for 10 years, uh, Unilever, most of our brands have a very strong purpose in terms of building toilets, providing hand washing, making a child reach the age of five, working on women's self-esteem. And it happens that the brand with these stronger purposes that work for these broader stakeholder social missions, if you want to, are also more profitable and grow mm. faster. Mm. So you'd be daft. You'd be daft if you run away from that. So mm. I think there is a core now based on consumer understanding, based on 
consumer demand, based on employee demand, based on financial market awareness, that will not let you slip back. But there is a danger, obviously, that in the sea of priority and the short-term panic, that we make the wrong decisions. But now turn your question around and say the coronavirus is here. So all of a sudden, we have a global crisis. So it reminds us that we as human beings are more united than we are different. You don't get that impression if you read the newspapers. But we are, first of all, we belong to uh, planet Earth. And this might be a great moment to unite in solidarity versus divide in, in ignorance. And the second thing that you see is that many of the issues that are giving us these pandemic actually trace back in a broken food system or in climate change that give us issues that we probably haven't fully realized what the consequences are. And these pandemics are only going to increase. So this might be a good moment of reflection, just like we had this reflection in the financial crisis, to think about some of these systems that we have created and repair them. And perhaps a great opportunity then to bend the curve of capitalism in the right direction. So at the end of the day, you are an optimist. <laughs> it's too late to be a pessimist. And I also have uh, discovered that anytime I want to be realistic, but anytime I get into the negative or pessimistic thought, despite the setbacks, it doesn't lead to anything. A pessimist and an optimist have the same life, but I've long ago discovered that an, an optimist has a happier life and I'd rather have a happier life. <laughs> Paul Pullman, thank you. Thank you very much, Alan. Leadership Next is produced by Dan Sacker, edited by Nicole Vergala, and written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 